and actually that's one of the things that I really admire about pediatricians their will, their willingness to step up early but actually I think we were blindsided by some of that early data and we in a sense without realizing it um, because we stood down so many services we, we said there's an element that that contributed to some of the harms that, that, that came later. There was um, really appropriate emergency response by that we turned the NHS into a really efficient COVID service. Hello and welcome to this edition of ADC Spotlight. This podcast is about COVID-19 and how it has affected children. It's difficult to do this very broad topic justice, but we have brought together a panel of specialists in child health and epidemiology. To read more about the topics we'll be covering, please visit the Archives of Disease and Childhood website at adc.bmj.com. You'll find direct links from the related papers on the description of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. So before we go into the uh, the conversation, I'd, I'd like you all to uh, introduce yourselves, please. Russell, could we start with you? I'm Russell Viner. I'm uh, a paediatrician and academic at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health and also currently president of the Royal College of uh, Paediatrics and Child Health. Thank you. Liz? Hi, I'm Liz Whitaker. I'm a paediatric infectious diseases consultant at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and a senior clinical lecturer at Imperial College where I work on immunology of infections in children. Thank you. And Nick? Hi, I'm Nick Brown. I'm a paediatrician and epidemiologist based in Sweden, work clinically in eastern Sweden with uh, academic links in Uppsala and um, at the Aga Khan University in Karachi. Uh, I'm editor-in-chief of ADC. Thank you all. Uh, my name is Rachel Becker and I'm a senior editor of ADC uh, and a paediatric intensivist based in Newcastle. So let's just dive straight in. Um, we're talking about COVID-19 and maybe um, in the same order that you've just introduced yourself, could you explain how you understand the effect that COVID-19 has had on child health? Okay, so I think the story of children in this pandemic is largely one of collateral damage. Uh, COVID-19, um, in a direct sense, has very little affected children and young people. Of course it has, so we'll talk more about that later. But in terms of the overall effects, um, children and young people have been very much affected by society's response to this pandemic, which is to lock down life, close schools, close services, etc., etc. And what we've seen is collateral damage. And I think we need to think carefully about our responsibilities to children for that. The issue of intergenerational equity in terms of um, the money our children and young, uh, will pay for the next 40 or 50 years um, to protect society from this pandemic. There's a whole range of issues there, as well as just the, the clinical ones. Thanks, uh, Russell. I completely agree. I completely agree with you, Russell. And I think that there's a, an even bigger picture here in terms of the, um, how this has highlighted the distinction between those who have and those who have not, because the ones who are going to suffer the most are definitely those in the poorest circumstances. And that's both at a national level in the UK, where I think um, it's really clear, but also when you look globally, 
at that impact in terms of education and health access in a more international setting, including vaccines and antenatal care, which has been dramatically affected in low resource settings. It's really concerning um, how big a deal this is. And if you look at those who are most affected from an adult perspective, it has knock on effects for their families in terms of those who are already suffering nutritional issues and having diabetes and things like that, which makes you have more severe COVID disease, all diseases of poverty. And I think that's been really extraordinary how it's highlighted the, the, the rich and the poor um, in this way. Nick? Yes, thanks. I, I completely agree with both of you. And I, I, um, from an editorial point of view, I've seen several sub-themes on effects over the last few months. So um, it's clear that the, 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 the effects are primarily secondary ones, but they're very broad ranging and very um, hard hitting. So child abuse, mental health, the school issue, uh, depression, uh, exercise, accidents, then accessing secondary care on which it's had a very great effect. Um, the way we practice in terms of managing long distance um, appointments. So yes, pro profound. Um, and it's hard to imagine right now a return to um, inverted commas, the normality we had before February this year. Yeah. And I, but I, can I jump in? I really feel that we have an opportunity here, though, um, particularly in the UK and the European setting, to try and look at the positives that we can take and how we can um, recover and reset health services, taking all the positives and trying to build on them. So, you know, you mentioned long distance care, but actually some of the things that are, some of my patients have really enjoyed is the ability to do virtual face-to-face -face clinics and decreasing because they're coming to a specialty center, they often travel long distances. And obviously initial assessments and, and many assessments need to be done face-to-face, -face, but for some assessments, doing them in a virtual way has been really beneficial for families. Um, I think the other thing that's been really amazing is how it's brought clinicians and academics um, together um, to work in such an efficient way um, to face an insurmountable challenge, but actually having success to do that. What I'm hearing from you uh, is that there's, there's, a, there's a, an extraordinary range of effects that it's, uh, it's had on um, individual children and uh, families and, and society in the, in the broader, broader sense. Um, uh, I, I heard saying going back to normal, if, you know, could, could we think a bit about what back to normal um, was? Because there were normals that were actually quite unpleasant. And how might COVID-19 have reset that? It's a really, really interesting point. And I think the NHS, the, the National Health Service across the UK is really looking at the moment about what to get back to. Um, we need to absolutely go back to patient-centered medicine that was good and that worked for children and young people and families and for professionals. We absolutely don't need to go back to the past, to things that we were doing because we couldn't manage to do it any differently. And that is a huge dilemma because um, knowing which was which is difficult because there's a lack of evidence around. Um, people's personal preferences will interfere with that. And we also need to be careful that some of the health systems don't try, uh, in fact, we know they are, there are elements of trying to, to reconfigure uh, health systems using COVID as an excuse the kinds of things that systems might have been trying to do for some time could be rushed through using COVID as a cover. 
Mm. But I think we have to use, I mean, the college has come up with a number of principles to guide uh, the restoration, which is about putting the needs of children and young people at the heart of it, and also recognizing the importance of participation by pediatricians, other child health workers, and children, young people in making these kinds of decisions and the need for evidence. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think um, that there's also the need for systems, but there's also the need to have everyone, for everyone to have a voice. So, you know, we're very fortunate to be involved in winter planning at the moment um, and making sure that every situation is recognised, um, but making sure we have equilibrium between rural and, and uh, urban settings as well as and tertiary and DGH centres and making sure that they're all reflected equally in terms of what access to patient care can be um, is going to be really crucial in ensuring that we get this right. Um, and it's so good to hear you talking about getting the children, the young people involved in, in setting that scene as well. Um, I think that um, they've been really neglected, I think, on the whole in across the UK because they haven't um, had severe COVID-19 disease. Um, and so it's been really hard for us to advocate with our adult colleagues because they've yeah. not been an obvious emergency. Yes, if I, if I could come back in, I mean, you're absolutely right. And the, the story early in the pandemic was in a sense, a strong message from, from, from China, very little direct clinical impact on children. So I, pediatric services in a sense stepped back and stepped down. And what we saw was pediatric clinical services being stepped down and space being given over to adults, pediatricians volunteering to, to be part of the staffing for the adult surge. Um, we also saw the protective systems in society, the, the, the ones that protect children, such as health visiting, social services, and obviously schools, all stood down. And for, for example, the health visiting, um, community nurses all redispersed to do adult work. And actually, that's one of the things that I really admire about pediatricians, their, will, their willingness to step up early. But actually, I think we were blindsided by, um, by some of that early data. And we, in a sense, without realizing it, um, because we stood down so many services, we, we, so there's an element that that contributed to some of the harms that, that, that came later. Pediatric services are cannot be part of a future mitigation for an adult um, for an adult crisis. Children's yeah. services need to to never again be stood down. They need to be retained. Yeah, absolutely. It was an appropriate thing to do in in the crux of an emergency, but we've had time to plan now, and and our planning has to take that into account. Yeah. So so Nick, if I come back to you hearing this um, and hearing that how uh, we as pediatricians in trying to do good may have um, caused some harm to the very population that we are looking after. What, what do you think the, um, the journal's role might be in there? Well, I, I would like to think it's gone some way to fulfilling that role in um, describing the events and the chronology that's made up the, the way we've taken stock of that the, the last few months. So the unraveling of the children are completely immune to any um, effects from the, from the pandemic uh, image that was prevalent in February through to the end of March until the obvious secondary effects 
um, started becoming clear and um, we published a, a great number of papers describing the uh, multi-system inflammatory disease that, that became evident in April and May. And uh, though we get a, a, a lot more submissions that we can reasonably publish, we remain on the on the lookout for new information, anything that can help preparation for the next wave. I think that there is an obligation to not just do COVID research. And I don't just mean journals, but funding bodies as well. There was, um, as we've already alluded to, this really appropriate emergency response. By the, we turned the NHS into a really efficient COVID service, but um, all the things that we said were harmful was everything else that didn't happen. And all of the funding that's currently going into research is for COVID research, but all of the problems that were problems before and that needed evidence base to direct care still exist. And I think that journals and funding bodies like Wellcome and UKRI and MRC and NIH have an obligation to continue funding other research too, because otherwise a lot of the advances that have been made in the last 20 to 30 years will, will fall back if we don't keep fighting on all fronts. Um, I think that we have to have COVID as part of our life, and that's what the new normal has to be, is an ability to look after COVID, but whilst also doing all the things we did before. Mm. And I might argue that we might need to do those better. Um, I think yeah. what COVID has uh, shown us is that um, what we thought was normal um, had some intrinsic inequalities um, in it. Um, uh, and uh, many of our population, other than wider, uh, wider population also outside of the UK, uh, did not have a life um, that might have been lived to the uh, most optimum. Um, and COVID-19 has given us an opportunity to look through that lens and say, what are the things that we said we would change or address and haven't so far? Uh, and, and I think there is now very little excuse not to, uh, to, address, uh, to address those. So, and, and the, one of the areas that I was thinking about is the, uh, uh, the mental health of children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wondered whether, whether anyone would like to, to reflect a bit on that. Absolutely. I think one of the things we've seen, this is part of the collateral damage. And it's interesting, we've, I think it's emerged that probably some of the greatest collateral damage to children and young people has been around mental health. And that's been in part, there's a whole range of reasons behind that, um, in part due to closing down their lives, of which closing school is a major part, but isolating them from their peers and the, the natural um, elements of play and social interaction that are essential for child development and for their happiness. Also, for, for, for young people, we've often taken away some of the transitions in their lives, particularly around exam transitions, transitions between school years, but also um, success through exams and transitions into work for older young people. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about the 16 to 24s in terms mm. of COVID impact. Um, and mental health, because they're the group in which I think some of the isolation impacts were greatest. Uh, young children are, are often can be quite happy, you know, ensconced in the bosom of their family, whereas for older young people, that can feel very isolating from from you know, the thing that really drives them, which is the, 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 their social networks. But we also know that their 16 to 24s were the group of society hardest hit financially. Um, for example, they, they, are, they were two or three times, I think the evidence is, more likely to work 
in a uh, industry that where most people were furloughed. So they tend to have temporary work anyway. They're the lowest paid workers and they were the most sacked and the most furloughed. Uh, they were also the ones where you know they lost exams and they lost transition into university. And in Britain, of course, we've also seen some fiascos about uh, exam results over the last um, months in a number of the UK countries. So mental health, I think there's a general rise in anxiety. There's evidence for that. In England, we've seen a small rise in suicide amongst young people, which, of course, is very rare but hugely concerning. And it was a real challenge for me that I could see some of this data evolving, but they weren't my data to make public and to think, what was my role? And my role was to make sure I challenged the system that the right people knew, the chief medical officer, secretary of state, prime minister, that they were getting this information, that, that the system was acting on it to make sure that mental health supports were um, were coming through and also that the data were made public in a timely way and all of that happened yeah i think there's been i think it's been really good at highlighting the mental health challenge of our young people but i think it's going back to the chat about what's the new normal or what is the normal i think there's a big question about how um, mental health care is accessed in the uk for young people and who picks up that there are mental health issues and so there is the importance of school for normal mental health but also the importance for school in identifying young people who are having mental health issues that maybe their families don't realize is going on and whether that's something that should be addressed and that more support should be put into schools going forward to help young people who are having mental health issues i know that cams is um does an extraordinary service but is underfunded and difficult to access and that's something that it would be great as part of the momentum and the recovery and the restoration of services to improve CAM services for young people in the UK. And sorry, just for the non-UK audience, that's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, CAMHS. And um, the, I, I guess there's the other possible positive in that um, the increased prevalence and the awareness of increased prevalence might make it more acceptable to talk about it, which um, has certainly been a, a, an, an obstacle in recognition in the past. I think that's a really good point. That's really true. So we've 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 talked a lot about um, uh, children and uh, and young and young people, uh, and we briefly mentioned that um, we would like to have their voices more heard. Um, we're used to advocating um, on their on their behalf, um, and I was wondering about your views on how can we bring their voices more centrally, more to the fore, more directly. You know, are there places um, uh, outside of the UK where that happens better? What, 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 where are the, the places for us to look in the UK to learn from? I do think actually that certainly in terms of research and in broader health system terms, the UK is one of the leaders in participation and young people's involvement. And that can feel that can feel strange to those of us sometimes who work in the UK, but, but it actually, it is true. There's always places we can learn from, I think. One of the things that's impressed me is the way that the NHS at, at many levels is becoming committed to children and young people's participation. I'm part of the Central Transformation Board for Children and Young People, which is a, you know, it is the sort of overarching strategic planning board to try and 
drive through improvements in children and young people's health. And we've recently brought um, four young people onto that board as full board members, supporting them um, through various organizations and other things. And they're going to be developing a um, young people stakeholder group in a sense to run in parallel to some of the adult professional inputs into that board. So I think we're starting to see the culture shift. And I think, um, for example, through the college, we have over a thousand, I think it's over 14, 1,400 now, young people who work with us across the country in our and us network. But we certainly have a long way further to go. It needs to be routinely embedded in the activities of any every health service organization. I think um, I think that this is going back to the, the positives and things that we can take away from this is we've all had to become so familiar and okay with a variety of platforms for talking to each other and to our patients, including, you know, NHS Attend Anywhere, Zoom, you know, Teams, all these amazing things that have become part of our daily lives uh, for good and for bad, if we're honest. But I think that young people have, are already very um, okay with them themselves. And we should probably try and use those advantages that young people have in their familiarity with social media and the ability to communicate like this to get them more involved in that way. They no longer have to travel somewhere. They don't have to um, have independence and finances to go somewhere. They just have to have a Wi-Fi uh, connection. And maybe that's something that we can advocate for is more access to to e-learning, e to Wi-Fi and laptops and all those things that young people would need to get their voice heard. Maybe that's something the pediatricians that we could do. Um, something I think that has been... Um, missed for some time is um, psychological support for parents of children who've been significantly unwell. And I don't know, Rachel, if you've come across this and um, working as an intensivist, but I think in particular parents of young children who are significantly unwell in intensive care units at any time always struggle to access support um, post-discharge. Um, and that has a knock-on effect on their children because of the anxiety and depression that they often experience and then their inability to make um, sensible decisions all the time for their children. It'd be lovely if uh, we could try and find a way of highlighting that the parental mental health is as important um, as the pediatric, as the children's mental health as well. Uh, it's something that I think that would be uh, something we should be doing better. I totally agree with that, Liz, but then again, I'm biased. Um, uh, I do see uh, that not just during the intensive care um, uh, admission, but um, at times afterwards, um, when we when we do follow them up, uh, that uh, family struggle, and then uh, be able to maintain uh, a life that's uh, that's conducive for family health. Because I think what's happened with COVID is that lots of people have lost their confidence and their ability to make a risk assessment about safety and what's risky and what's not. Because because there was so much unknown about the virus and its effect and who would become unwell as a general population lots of people have found themselves in that place that I think parents post-intensive care find themselves in which is that slight loss of an ability to make a risk assessment because they thought they knew how to manage fevers for example and then their child got sepsis and then they don't know how to manage the next fever because could it be sepsis again and I feel like COVID-19 will have hit parents confidence about that and schools and safety and I think the college has been doing an extraordinary job in trying to re-establish confidence in normal everyday living for children, but that's something that we really need to do on a much bigger scale as well. I agree, and I, I, I think this has been, when using that as an example, I think it's been, the, the situation has been compounded by the understandable reluctance to access secondary care, e.g. in particular, um, 
at least uh, until fairly recently. So that's led to a degree of um, certainly perception from parents of isolation, which has made things extremely difficult. So and I usually ask this somewhere um, in, in the conversations, and, and that is, so for our audience, uh, people who are interested in child health, um, many pediatricians, what is it that you would say to, uh, to your pediatrician um, uh, in the sense of having a conversation about the people they see and maintaining health in their families? What, what, would, what would you say to them? What can you do? I talk about, and I talk endlessly about risk balance. Mm-hmm. When, and this is particularly about schools, I think, but it replies to everything else. And I try to get people back to recognizing that that's what we do in life. People ask me, you know, is it safe to open schools? Is it safe for my child to do X or Y? And I say, every time you open your front door, before COVID, every time you opened your front door and got in your car, you know, there was an element of risk. You took your child to school. There was an element of risk. Children break things at schools. Occasionally children fall down. You know, very occasionally children die in accidents at school. Um, schools carry risk. Bullying occurs in schools. You know, um, you can catch influenza in school and lice and impetigo. Um, there is risk in everything we do. Um, around 16 children die every year in the UK from influenza. Um, Around 150 children and young people die every year on the roads in the UK. And actually, but no parent, when they're driving their child to school, as they get into their car with their child, ever thinks about the risk of dying from a motor vehicle accident. And I I tell this story because to make people think that actually all of the time we have unconscious risk balances in our mind, that we've decided it's better to do X than not do it, even though there is a risk. And we need to see COVID in one sense as just another risk without downplaying it. We need to be able to say to parents and to pediatricians and head teachers, actually, you're really good at this. You've done it always. You're very good at this kind of risk balance. You did it. You never thought about it. It was part of life. And we need to get back to that. You have, you've dealt with uncertainty all your life. There's more uncertainty around now with COVID but we can't react with fear. We have to go back to doing what we've done well. Yeah. And I think that we, um, what I always see, what I feel really strongly is that everybody who's involved with children, and I include doctors, nurses, health visitors, midwives, teachers, teaching assistants, anybody who has an interaction with children has a duty to understand the risk themselves. Because I think that even medics are often very afraid of COVID partly because they don't quite know the risks and stuff. So we have an education job to do for all of those professionals to make sure that everyone understands what the risks are and how we can mitigate them so that they can then have that confidence to explain it to parents in an appropriate way and give the parents the confidence they need to make those decisions too. So there is a huge deal of education about this that has to be done um, at a national, international level to make sure that everyone has the facts so that they can make that risk assessment that you're talking about, Russell. Um, and uh, I think that we have we have a real job to do for that. So, if you were to look uh, at a year from now, what is it that you'd like to describe that wasn't there and is now um, apparent in a good way? Ooh, that's a hard question. 
Now, um, I would like to see children as a very clear priority, children and young people, as a very clear priority within the health service, which I think we started to see developing in the UK and in not just in the acute clinical services, but really right from birth through adolescence into young adulthood in terms of that link between prevention, community services and health. And I, and as a major part of that, I want to see much more join up between physical and mental health services. I think that's an opportunity that COVID may bring us. I think we still plan mental health services very differently to traditional pediatrics, and child health services. Um, and we need much closer working and better join up. Um, I would take it back a bit further. I think that um, in nationally and internationally, antenatal health, um, maternal mental health and maternal uh, you know, pregnancy and, and antenatal associated education and access to healthcare is really crucial to get that start in life right. What's been really interesting is, is to me, I think maybe, is that I, and there have been, um, because pregnant women have been protected in some way, there's been confinement, like in the Victorian era, or pregnant women, there was a concern that they would be affected by COVID. I don't know that they necessarily were. And so they were taken out of the workplace in a variety of settings, um, but actually have had quite good health in pregnancy. And I think that perhaps we um, and their babies have had good weights. There have been perhaps a slight decrease, if I understand correctly, in preterm deliveries. Um, and that maybe we should be looking after pregnant women better. Um, and that's something that we could bring forward to have more protected antenatal care and, and maternity leave but maybe a bit more like you have in Sweden, Nick. I think that we don't necessarily look after young mums very well in this country, and that's something that we could change, having reflected on what we've learned through COVID. Yes, um, I agree with both of you. I'd, I'd, I'd re-emphasise it. It's, there's an opportunity here for a, a sort of whole life cycle um, change, or at least refocus. And um, what I wouldn't want to see it just turning Rachel's question slightly around. And what I wouldn't want to see is, um, in a year's time, disappointment and a missed opportunity to do something now on all, on all these levels. Yeah. So there is a window here for momentum and innovation and joint up thinking that we, we really have to take. I know everyone's quite fatigued. It's been a really tough six months. Um, but actually... You know, there is a, a, a moment to strike while the iron's hot and try and do all these things while we can. Well, thank you all. Russell Viner, Elizabeth Kerr, and Nick Brown. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs>